0: invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29, looking this morning at the church of Thyatira. We come to the fourth of the seven churches unto whom Jesus spoke. Of all the churches that we've considered thus far, Jesus' message to Thyatira is perhaps Uh, The most specific in regard to problems, I wouldn't necessarily call it errors, because the focus is not so much on the church as it relates to the error, but the focus is more on the error itself. And we're finding, as these churches progress, until we get to the sixth church, the Church of Philadelphia, that each church it seems to be progressively, if I can put it this way, getting a little bit worse. Um, As far as their conduct, as far as their lack of distinction, as far as some error. We we saw in in Ephesus they lost their first love. Smyrna was a persecuted church that had no rebuke against them. And then as we have continued, uh, we we, we will see that, that they're going to be kind of progressively getting worse until Philadelphia, the sixth church. We dig in this morning to chapter 18 as we continue. And the Bible says this. Unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. So we we see an introduction that we are quite familiar with at this point. It is written unto the angel of the church, right? And we talked about that. And it's to the church of Thyatira. This is the church unto whom Jesus is writing. History tells us that Thyatira was a fairly wealthy town on the border of the provinces of Lydia and Mysia. There's not a significant amount of information known about the origins of the city, but if we can call it this, its modern history began in about 300 B.C., so about 300 years before the time of Christ, its modern history began. It began as a very insignificant town. It was not on any major trade routes uh, or anything of the sort, so it was not a, a very significant town. However, uh, with Pergamos on, to its north and Sardis to its south, it did have a road between them, and uh, as it was never really a metro never a huge city, the valley in which it resided, uh, with the waters that were there uh, were left somewhat untainted and actually became a decent place for various businesses that didn't need to be on a major route. They didn't need uh, heavy amounts of, of foot traffic. They just needed uh, roads to be able to get their wares to other places. So it was a notable city. It became a very wealthy city because it had numerous trade guilds. It had a uh, very powerful coppersmith guild there. It also had a very powerful guild uh, that related to the dyeing of fabrics. And one of the likely members of that guild, or at least having been influenced by that guild, was a woman by the name of Lydia if you remember her from Scripture. She forms the only link in Scripture, other than Revelation chapter 2, to the city of Thyatira itself. And we read about Lydia in Acts chapter 16. The Bible says, beginning in verse 12, And from thence to Philippi, this would be the apostles, uh, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath we went out of the city... By riverside, where prayer was wont to be made, and we sat down and spake unto the woman which resorted thither. And a certain wo- uh, woman, excuse me, which resorted thither, and a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized in her household, she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house. And abide there. And she constrained us. So you'll notice that the connection to the city here is actually somewhat meager. Uh, The apostles were in Philippi when they met Lydia, uh, down by a river. She was most likely uh, either of Jewish persuasion or uh, was uh, uh, recognizing validity of the the Jewish teachings, but she did not know of Christ. So she is down there uh, where she's praying, where she's worshiping. Uh, She worshiped God, and she heard them speaking of Christ. Of course, what Jesus tells us, that the sheep hear His voice, and they are known of Him. She hears the God. She recognizes that the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, conforms to the same God unto whom she was worshiping. She accepted Christ and she became a true blessing to them there in Philippi, which was the first place that the apostles went in Macedonia. We, we see here, however, that she was a seller of purple and that she was from Thyatira. And this would not surprise us because that is where the guild was for the the dyeing of fabrics. And as we mentioned as well, it was also a place where they had coppersmithing. Uh, it was a place place where they would work with brass. And this plays into how Jesus presents himself to this church. Notice as we get back into verse 18 that he says, uh, "...these things saith the Son of God, who hath his eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass." Uh, the emphasis upon the the eyes like flames, the feet like brass uh, once again it corresponds very closely to the vision that John saw in chapter one when he turned and he saw the Lord and he saw his aims like uh, his eyes like f- fire and his feet uh, like uh, like as if they were on fire, glowing fine brass, uh, the sword coming out of the lord's mouth, those sorts of things We mentioned. That from last week, as we were talking about Pergamus, the sword, uh, two weeks ago, the sword coming out of his mouth and, and what that is to represent. We also represent, uh, mentioned when we were in Revelation chapter 1 that the idea of fire and of brass both lend themselves to the concept of judgment in the Scriptures. I'd like to get a little more specific about this as we're talking about it more this morning. More specifically, even than just judgment, when we see fire or brass in the Bible, your mind should lend itself not just toward judgment exclusively, but if I can use the word purification, purification might, might, might be a better word for it, not just judgment as in you've done something wrong and you are to be judged, but also testings, trials, each is seen through the imagery of fire, through uh, uh, the imagery of brass In regard to fire, we read this in Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 46. Jesus speaking, he says, And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. So here we see fire associated closely with judgment. This is not a purifying judgment at this point, right? Uh, Hell is not reserved for those that need to be purified. Hell is reserved for those who, having rejected Jesus Christ as their Savior, having rejected the the revelation of God through His Word, are now in a place of judgment, and that judgment will be by fire. But there are also many warnings to the believer in Scripture about fire, and this is not a fire of us being intrinsically judged. Sometimes uh, uh, our works are judged through fire, but also just being tried. Just being tried. So, as far as our works go, and the trial of our works, the judgment of our works, we read this in 1 Corinthians 3 verses 11-15. We alluded to it in Sunday school this morning. Paul says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble... Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. So here we see a judgment upon believers, not unto damnation or salvation, but unto reward. He goes on, in verse 14 If any man's work abide which he hath built there, uh, thereupon, he shall receive a reward. But if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire a warning to believers that their works will be tried by fire, that their works will be judged, and only those things done in the Spirit, those things that are, that are, are uh, exemplified as gold, silver, and precious stones, will pass through the fire without having been consumed. Those things that are done carnally, those things that are done selfishly in the flesh, will be burned up, will be judged and will be removed, and there will be loss of reward at the judgment seat. So we've talked about judgment, right? Judgment upon the unbeliever, eternal judgment in hell. Uh, judgment upon the believer, his works being burned up. I've mentioned the purification idea. And we see this as an example in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter writes this, "...wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations." That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Peter describes here the process of our faith being tried by fire. This would not be judgment. God does not judge us for having faith, right? Uh, We've mentioned um, John 15 several times this morning. the, the, The vine and the branches. Jesus says, "Every branch uh, in me." Uh, <laughs> okay, let me let me let me uh, let me start over there. I am the vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth fruit, that beareth not fruit, He taketh it away. But every branch in me that beareth fruit, He purgeth it. That it may bring forth more fruit, right? That's where I was going with that. The idea being that if there is a branch that is bearing fruit, Jesus will prune back that branch, cut it back, purge it, so that it can actually become healthier and bear more fruit in the future. Right, my wife and I just planted some apple trees, and they're tiny little apple trees, and as we were reading up on it, one of the things that was said is that next year and that next season if they start to bud flowers, that this one person recommended that we we pluck all of those off the first year so that the tree does not have to be giving its time and its effort and its nutrients to trying to establish any sort of fruit in that first year and instead it can Get its roots stronger. And then that next year you can let the flowers uh, bloom and all of those sorts of things. The idea being that I am actually going to remove that which is even healthy from the tree so that it can become stronger in the future. And Peter gives the analogy of fire to, to uh, speak of this. Brass is associated with purity and judgment in a slight way as we find that the altar within the tabernacle as well as the laver, washing was made brass. We have the idea here as Thyatira was a metal um, smithing place of the smelting process right? Where you take metal particularly gold and you put gold into a fire and you melt it down and then you smelt it and you, you skim off the top the impurities and as the impurities bubble up to the top you skim all of those off the top and then you have a more pure metal on the other side. This is the idea that Peter is alluding to in First Peter chapter 1 that our, our, our lives are tried by fire not in judgment, but in purification. That God will allow us to go through things that we might become purer, that we might be better, more suited to His purposes on the other side. So Jesus is seen in Revelation chapter 1 as the one whose eyes are a flame of fire. His eyes are looking out with judgment and His feet are as fine uh, brass and, and it's described as fiery brass. What is that? A glowing brass, right? A glowing brass, a, a purified Metal. He's seeking judgment and he's seeking purification. And those are the symbols that we would understand here as, as we would believe them uh, that, that we see throughout uh, within this text. Continuing in verse 19, the Bible says this: Jesus speaking to the church: I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy patience and thy works. And the last to be more than the first. He gives a list of attributes here which he associates with this church. And it's a truly wonderful list, is it not? It's a great list. Works. As with Ephesus, they were a working church. They did much for Christ. Love. This is that agape love, right? Love manifest and sacrifice is how we define it at this church. Uh, a love that, that uh, the Bible says fulfills the law of Christ. Service. They were a ministering church. They were serving one another. They were meeting the needs of the saints. Faith. They were a believing church. They were holding fast to the convictions of the truths of God's word. They were holding fast to sound doctrine. They were trusting the Lord. And then patience. Again, we saw this with Ephesus as well, that they were a church which endured, waiting hopefully for the Lord. They were a patient church. Uh, They were not getting ahead of themselves. They They were waiting on the Lord. And then finally... You see again there in the text, and thy works. Thy works is mentioned twice. It's even the exact same Greek word. This church was doing very, very well, and the idea of having works at the beginning, and then all of these attributes, and then works at the end, the implication of that is that they were getting better still. They were a growing church. They were adding works upon works. They were not stagnant, like with Ephesus. Ephesus was a church that had works, but they had left their first love, right? They were stagnant. They had lost their motivation. They were fighting for the sake of fighting uh, against contending for righteousness, I mean there. They were contending for the sake of contending. They lost their motivation in Christ. Thyatira was not this way. Their works were increasing. They were motivated. They were growing. They were doing very well. As a matter of fact... If our church could be described this way, I think our church would be doing very well. That being said, however, this is the only verse of commendation that we see. The rest of these verses, and there's several more to cover still, are the negatives. We see in verse 20 and 21, the Bible says this, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication and she repented not. For all that the church was doing well, they had a problem. It was almost as if the church had a bipolar nature. On the one side of the church, they have the works and the faith and the charity and the service and the patience. But then it's as if they had a cancer within the church. They had this contingency within the church. And, and, and within this church, there was this woman, this prophetess, who was tainting people in the church. And because we see such a strong commendation and then we see this strong rebuke and as we continue studying in the text you'll see that God almost separates them to where he talks to the church and then he talks to this woman and her followers and then he talks to the church again. That that lends us to this idea that it's not as if the whole church was being tainted. It was more like the church was doing well, and then some error got into the church, and the church was not really dealing with it. They were just almost sectioning it off and just saying, yeah, that group of the church is doing this thing, and then everyone else is doing really well, but they still had this part of the church. these, These people that had access to the church, though they were in error. So, Jesus speaks of a particular woman in this church whom He calls Jezebel. Uh, whether or not this is actually her name is unknown, but probably unlikely. More, more likely, Jesus is using this as a, uh, as a reference to her character, not to her actual name. Jezebel, we would recognize as a woman in the Old Testament, found recorded in 1 Kings chapter 16-21 through 21 and 2 Kings 9, as women go in the Scriptures, Jezebel is the Bible's most clear description of what an evil, sinful, and wicked woman looks like. She is uh, the, the, the prototype of the wicked woman. She is the prototype of the evil woman. She had extremely. She, she was uh, a pagan woman. She was not of Israel. She was the daughter of Ephbaal, king of the Zidonians, She was given in marriage to King Ahab who was the king of the northern tribes of Israel during the divided monarchy. And she had a a notable negative influence upon Ahab. Ahab was certainly not a man of sterling character to begin with. His father was an evil man. Ahab started off as an evil man. But Ahab had lines. He was kind of a timid man. He was not a very very, um, strong leader. He was not a very strong man. Uh, He had lines that he wouldn't cross, not necessarily because he didn't want to cross them, but because he was too afraid to cross them. And his wife would just push him right over those lines. And she'd say, well, if you're not going to do it, I'm going to do it. And she took his evil and magnified his evil in, in uh, uh, many different ways. We can rightly describe her as a woman who ran the household, and often reflected disdain upon her husband, who simply was not evil enough for her ambitions and her designs. So we're introduced to her in the Bible in this way. We read in First Kings chapter sixteen, verses thirty-one to thirty-three. And it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, that he took to uh, he, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal. And worshipped him, and he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. So this is how the biblical story of Jezebel begins, that she's a pagan woman, that she encourages him to erect an altar to Baal because that's her God and she had no intention of switching her, her religious worship or any of her systems. And so Ahab builds these things for her. Now see how it ends. 2 Kings chapter 9. This is the prophet speaking to um, Ahab and to Jezebel, and he says in verse 7, And thou shalt smite the house of Ahab thy master, uh, um, speaking uh, here to Jehu, excuse me, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. Continuing to verse 9. And I will make the house of Ahab like unto the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And the dog shall eat Jezebel in the portion of Jezreel, and there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. So the prophet here is speaking to Jehu, who would be chosen by the Lord to enact this judgment upon the house of Omri and Ahab. And he says that the blood of the servants of the Lord would be accounted for at the hand of Jezebel, Notice. She was active in destroying the servants of the Lord. And then God had such disdain for her that he ordained her to be killed and then eaten by dogs rather than to be able to even have the dignity of a burial, which we find enacted as she has her own people throw her out a window. And then as she falls out the window, she dies, and then they just leave her there. They don't even pick up her body, and she's eaten by the wild animals. She's not a good... uh, Character <laughs> Certainly, you don't, you don't see a lot of people named Jezebel today, and there's a good reason why. There's a good reason why. So in verse 20, we carry this understanding into Revelation. And we find that there was a woman in the church, probably not actually named Jezebel, but her character reflects that of Jezebel. And she is having this evil influence upon the church, probably in the same way that she influenced Ahab, Je- Jezebel influenced Ahab, this woman, this prophetess, was influencing the church and encouraging them to follow what we defined last week in Pergamus as the doctrine of Balaam. As this doctrine of uh, fornication and, and uh, of worshiping unto idols. Much to say here, as we consider these two characteristics. First, we understand that these are traits... of the false teacher as they are given in the New Testament. In Second Peter chapter 2, Peter writes this. In verse 1 he says, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Continuing in verse 14, a description of them, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls and heart... They have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, this idea that they were continuing in their evil. I think I lost a slide there. verse 19 let me let me read it for you. I wanted to read verse 19 as well um, but I don't think it's on that slide. Second Peter 2:19 says, while they promised them liberty they themselves are servants of corruption." For of whom a man is overcome of the same as he brought in bondage. So they are those who are bringing others into bondage. They are those who are leading others into sin. Those are false teachers. To this end, uh, we, we mentioned briefly the concept of eating things sacrificed unto idols. And I want to take a moment to remark on this, because if you've studied 1 Corinthians, the Bible says here that one of the things that, that she had encouraged them to do is to eat meat sacrificed unto idols. And that might throw up a little bit of a question mark in the mind of those who understand um, 1 Corinthians, because in 1 Corinthians, Paul devotes an entire chapter of Scripture to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, we read this. As concerning therefore the things of, uh, excuse me, as concerning therefore the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. And that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but, unto, uh, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. So here we have a scenario played out where Paul references the idea of eating things that are sacrificed unto idols. And as he answers this question, he says, we know that an idol is nothing. And to that end, with knowledge of this fact, we can eat meat offered to idols without a problem. Because we don't eat it as meat offered to an idol. We say the idol is nothing. I serve God. This is just meat. And I'm just going to eat it as if it is meat. Well, if that's the case... If Paul says it's okay to eat meat uh, sacrificed into idols in this perspective, that I don't see it as meat offered to idols, but instead I just eat it as meat. Because an idol is nothing, right? It's a piece of stone. It's sitting there. Whatever. Why then is it a problem for the church of Thyatira? To answer this, I'd like us to continue in 1 Corinthians 8. And I believe it will become clear. In verse uh, 7, the Bible says this. Paul says, Howbeit, there is not in every man that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So, what Paul is saying is that uh, the reason a Christian can eat meat offered unto idols without sinning is because he has enough knowledge to understand that the idol is nothing but material emptiness. To this end, when a Christian that understands this eats said meat, he does it not to reverence or worship the idol, but simply because he's hungry, right? He regards the idol as nothing. However, not every Christian, he says, has this knowledge. And there is a contingency of those who believe that there being power behind these idols, and we know that, that, that there is power in, in devil worship, Right? and to whatever degree that this idol represents devil worship there is something behind that we talked in pergamus about that great altar to zeus right and and that pergamus was called the place where satan's seat is that there is indeed spiritual strongholds demonic strongholds and that pergamus was one of those demonic strongholds so maybe it would be that in a place such as pergamus they would not take the meat from off of that zeus Altar and eat it because they would say this is a stronghold of Satan and I'm not about to regard in any way something that came from that altar. And if they think that and and discern that and believe that well then if they were to eat the meat they would eat it as something offered to an idol which would be spiritual adultery would it not? Whereas if some other Christian passing through town went to the market and saw some meat and they said this meat has been dedicated to idols And he's like, okay, whatever. Idols are nothing. And so he eats the meat. Okay. He ate the meat. He wasn't regarding it as something sacrificed to an idol. He wasn't regarding it as something of of spiritual value. He was regarding it as meat. And so he ate the meat, right? This is the idea here. So, and this is a part of the the more broader teaching of what we call the weaker brethren principle. But as we again translate this into Revelation chapter 2, verses 20 and 21... What was clearly happening in Thyatira is that this evil prophetess was convincing the people to eat this meat that was sacrificed unto idols as something that was sacrificed unto idols. To actually say, yes, this is being sacrificed unto idols, and I am regarding the idol by eating this meat. I am regarding the spiritual power behind it. They were, she was actually convincing them to commit spiritual fornication as if there was nothing wrong with that. To be able to worship the idol and worship God simultaneously. And this is the problem. So God says that He gave this evil woman a space to repent, verse 21. I gave her space to repent of her fornication. And she repented not. There was no repentance found in her. Notice it's she. Generally speaking, when we see in these in these letters to the churches, the repent, it's to the church, right? You repent, repent, church, repent. He hasn't talked to the church about repenting yet. He's only said, I gave her space to repent, but she refused. Jesus had a few things against the church, but his focus in the call to repentance is not toward the church itself, but towards this woman and her followers. And so he pronounces a judgment upon her and her followers because she refused to repent. Verses 22 and 23, the Bible says this, Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and the hearts. And I will give unto every one of you according to your works. The consequence of this woman's sin within the church would be severe, both upon her and upon her followers. He says that he would cast her into a bed, the concept here being that he would put her upon a deathbed, along with those who practice adultery with her, pronouncing a death sentence upon her and her followers, whether this is an explicitly physical death sentence, as, as we would see, say, in 1 Corinthians, where the, the Corinthian church was not regarding the Lord's table with uh, proper reverence, and so Paul said, for this reason many among you are sickly and, and some sleep. The idea being that people were getting sick and dying because they were not regarding the body and the blood of the Lord. Whether that is the idea behind this or whether it's simply the spiritual death, the separation from God because they are unbelievers uh, is a question. Maybe, a, maybe a, a little bit of both. It might be a, uh, ha- have both meanings there. But one way or another, he says, death is coming. I will cast them into a bed, a death bed. And then into, he says, a place of great Tribulation. Notice it says great tribulation, not the great tribulation. Uh, depending on how we interpret the seven churches of Revelation, which we'll talk about at the end of them, uh, some would believe here the idea of the great tribulation as in the final three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel. But what he's simply saying here is great tribulation, great sorrow that he would bring upon them great sorrow, great suffering leading to destruction. And he says he will kill her children with death. Those that followed her in her error would also be destroyed. And the point of this destruction, notice, is that all the churches would know that Jesus knows what is happening, that it's not getting by him, that he cannot be fooled, that he will judge the hearts and actions within his church, that he will give according to our works. And notice here the change in pronoun reference. There's a you and a your in that last phrase, having changed from the thee and the thou earlier, and then the she and the them. Jesus does this when he wants to compel each of us, uh, each person as individuals, right, instead of just the church body as a whole. We've seen this now in the last three churches, in Smyrna, in Pergamos, and in Thyatira. We've seen this change in pronoun reference from thee, thy, thou, to you, your, ye. And this is the final church where Jesus will do this. In this case, he's warning that each person in the church, not the church as a whole, right? We've kind of got this one church and there's cancer in the church and there's individuals on this side and individuals on this side. And Jesus says he will destroy her and he will destroy her followers. And then every single one of them will be given according to their works. They'll all be judged according to their works. He'll try their reigns. He'll search their hearts. He wants purity, right? Remember that he presented himself to this church with eyes of fire, with feet of brass, in in the reference of judgment, in the reference of purification. And so he's warning them that they each need to search their hearts because he's going to judge each according to their works. We'll come back to that in a few moments. Verses 24 and 25 Jesus says, But unto you I say, we're still in the you, ye, your pronoun reference, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine and which have not known the depths of Satan as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden but that which ye have already. Hold fast till I come. I find this fascinating. This woman and her children are going to be destroyed, all of them will be judged. He says, but unto you that have not gone this direction, unto you that have not been corrupted by these false doctrines and evil doctrines and wicked and fraudulent prophetess and her teaching. He calls her teaching the depths of Satan. To those that have not been caught up in such wickedness, Jesus says he'll call them unto nothing else but that they just continue doing what they're doing. Here's what's interesting about this. In every church thus far, Jesus has basically written to the church and he said, Get your house in order. Cast out those that are teaching the doctrine of Balaam. Remember the first works. In this church, he says this I'm going to take care of this one. You that haven't been tainted, just hold fast. Just stay pure. Let me deal with this one. I'm going to purify this church for you. I find that fascinating. That God takes this one into his own hands. Instead of telling the church, clean up your own house, he says, I'm going to clean up my house, clean up the house, and I lay no other burden upon you but that you stay pure and you hold fast. He says to them, You have enough of a burden simply maintaining your purity within the midst of those that are teaching this the the depths of Satan, this doctrine with, with this Jezebel. I'll destroy her, he says. I'll destroy her followers. Just hold fast till I come. And as always, Christ finishes with a message to the overcomers. This is a message of encouragement to all who are in Christ. A reminder that though there are judgments, though there are commendations, though we are struggling in this life, though there are are battles to be fought, and though we're tired and though we get weary, we are overcomers if we have accepted Christ as our Savior. We are more than conquerors through Him who loves us. Romans 8. That nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so there's a promise at the end to each, to to overcomers, to all who will read that are overcomers. And he says this, he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father and I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Those who are overcomers, who have abounded in spite of the evil that surrounds them, who have continued in His works in the midst of the depths of Satan, they're reminded that there's coming a day when they will rule with Christ. There's coming a day when we will rule with Christ. When we will have power over the nations. That word rule there, notice, is actually the word shepherd. It's the word that we glean our word pastor from. The rod of iron, the rod that was in a pastor's hand, that was in a shepherd's hand, was used for two purposes. It was used to defend the sheep and it was used to direct the sheep. There was a a, a defending element where it would be a strong rod. And then there was a a guiding element, the crook. You see the shepherd and they have the crook so that they can grab one of their sheep and pull it in the direction that it needs to go. That's why they had the crook on it so that you could pull the sheep. The idea of ruling, shepherding with a rod of iron it is not just that, he's gonna have a, that we're gonna, each going to have a lead pipe in our hand to clock our enemies, but the idea being that we will have a rod both to shepherd, both to guide and to defend, while simultaneously it being of iron, which means it will be unbreakable. It's oftentimes a picture in the Scripture of absolute rule, of absolute authority. And notice that he says that those who overcome will rule and reign with Christ. That as the Father gave Jesus the right to rule, so too Jesus will distribute to those who have followed him authority as well. And we have that to look forward to. He says that he would not only give them authority, but he says as well that he would give them the morning star. Jesus himself is called the bright and morning star in Revelation 22.16. Like in Pergamus where Christ promised that he would give them the hidden manna, recognizing that Jesus uh, called himself the bread of life in the book of John, we would understand, perhaps here, Jesus saying that he would give them of himself. There's uh, some questions with some of these things as to what exactly Jesus is promising. The morning star, of course, would be the dawn, Right? Those, those final stars that would show just before the light of day, that show that the dawn is breaking. And so this idea could mean a few other things, but it seems likely that he's speaking of himself as the bright and morning star. That Jesus would give them of himself. He would not just give them of his authority, but that he would give them of himself. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. There's no better gift, no greater blessing than that we might have Christ. The final verse is a familiar call. All who have ears to hear, hear. Not everyone has ears to hear. Not everyone in the church has ears to hear. But if we have ears to hear, let's hear. Let's obey. And in that vein, two points of application this morning. Point number one. Christ is watching, and what we do matters. We talked about purity. We talked about judgment. We talked about the wood, hay, and stubble, the gold, silver, and precious stones. We talked about the the trials by fire. Jesus presented himself to the church as one whose eyes were aflame and whose feet were ready to try and to purify. Jesus is seen this way, not just in Revelation, but he's seen this way throughout the breadth and length of the church that He is coming again, that He's bringing His rewards with Him, that He is going to make an account. As we compare Scripture with Scripture, we find that the judgment of God upon the works of man does not rest upon only the unbeliever, but upon the believer as well. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10 says, "...we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad." Every one of us will stand before the Lord in judgment one day. On that day, the Bible says the books will be opened and another book will be opened, which is the book of life. If your name is written in the book of life, you will enter into heaven. That, is, that name being written in that book of life hinges upon one thing and one thing as well, uh, only. If you have believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. However, the other books will be opened as well. And those are the books of our works. The book of life has nothing to do with our worthiness, has nothing to do with our efforts, or anyone else's efforts save Jesus Christ alone. But those other books that will be opened on that day will be judged out of those books according to what we've done, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And if I may put it this way, and I don't want to, I, 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 I want to be careful with this, but I, I want to put it this way, that should strike terror into your heart. It should. Heaven is going to be bliss. It's going to be wonderful. He's going to wipe all tears from our eyes. It's true. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, that's you. But there's coming a day before you get there. And it will be a day of judgment. And that day ought to strike terror into our hearts. It's a common misconception within Christian circles that once I'm saved, nothing else matters. Sometimes we do this with our children. It's as if once they accept Christ as their Savior, we take the big sigh and say, okay, mission accomplished. No, mission just begun. Mission just begun. Nothing could be further from the truth than to say that once I'm in Christ, that's it, that's all I need, I'm done. If you feel that, you need to change your feelings. If you believe that, you need to change your mind. You need need a repentance. Because this is an error. uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6-11 through says this, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor, he says, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of Him. Not accepted... Christ, we're accepted in Christ, right? As far as salvation goes. But we labor that we may be accepted of Him for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. This is our context. That everyone may receive the things done in his own body according to uh, that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Verse 11. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. We persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are manifest in your conscience. The day of judgment, even upon the believer, is called by Paul the terror of the Lord. The Bible only alludes to what the rewards of our faithfulness will be on that day. Jesus gives the parable of the talents and he talks about uh, the, the master who goes away into a far country and when he comes back he reckons of his servants what they did with the talents and, and to each servant according, as they, according to their effort he, he gave them a reward he gave them cities until the final servant who buried his talents and the master says "Thou wicked servant he called him a wicked servant now he was still a servant but he had no reward and even that which he had been given had he had taken away the Bible only alludes to what will go through the hearts and minds of those who have wasted their days in frivolity and selflessness having been in Christ but we do know this there's coming a day of judgment and those who have wasted their days will suffer a great loss and there will be tears I can't really stand here today to tell you what you will experience or why it matters so much that we do the work that we reject sin, that we live in faithfulness to God. I, I, I can't tell you what you're going to feel or how that day is going to look or, or, or whatever the case may be, but I know this, that the Apostle Paul lived every moment of every day in light of what that day will mean to him. That, that he lived compelled to make sure that that day would go well for him. The Bible is very clear all throughout the Gospels and in the epistles. Our Lord tells us that that day matters. And if you have the faith to receive it, let this change your life. Let this direct how you live. Let this direct what you do and what you don't do. On that day, the time we have wasted will become the deepest bitterness for us to remember and realize how much we forfeited through selfishness. So I return our minds to the exhortation of Paul in, Romans chapter, or in 1 Corinthians 3. We talked about the wood, hay, stubble, the gold, silver, and precious stones. We read it already. I'm not gonna, I've got it up here, but I'm not going to read it to you again. He says that if any man's works shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. You don't want to suffer loss on that day. I can't describe it. I don't know all of what the rewards are going to look like. I don't know all of how it's going to feel when we suffer loss. There's a pragmatic part of me and perhaps every human that says, well, look, if I get to heaven, what does it matter? And I can't tell you, I can't, I can't plumb the depths of that except to say that so many books of our Bible tell us it matters. And if you have enough faith to believe it, you'll do well. Christ is watching. What we do matters. Number two, Christ is yours. Is Christ enough? This point goes in hand with the other one. Jesus said that he would give them the morning star. He told the other church that he would give them the manna, the hidden manna. He promises himself to those who overcome. For some, the allures of this life have just taken on a gleam. The promises of Christ seem to fail in their luster when we see the world and the offers of the world around us. And it causes us to struggle in a desire to lay up for ourselves treasure in heaven at the expense of the things of this earth. But I exhort you to remember that Christ is enough. Paul wrote in Philippians 3, verses 8-10, through Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him not having mine own righteousness which is of the law but that which is through the faith of Christ the righteousness which is of God by faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering being made conformable unto His death. Does your heart relate to those words? Is your love for Christ your desire for Christ just Christ? We're not talking about whatever blessings may come we're not talking about the blessings of morality we're not talking about those things We're talking about Christ, having Christ, being in Christ, abiding in Christ, the peace, the joy, the contentment that comes in Christ. Is that enough for you? Enough that you would be willing to suffer any loss, earthly, health, material gain, job, whatever it might be. Is Christ enough for you? Paul had placed everything on the altar. He had said so much. Pharisee of the Pharisees, right? He had had been a, 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 a wealthy man. He had been a promising man. He had been an intelligent man. And he placed it all on the altar because he regarded the joy and the reward, the eternal reward of knowing Christ to be worth any and everything that this world might have to give to him. Now, each of us is different. Many of us have jobs and families and things which ask for some investment in this world. And that's okay that's why I preached the Ecclesiastes last year it's okay it's absolutely okay to have money it's absolutely okay to have families it's absolutely okay to have jobs these are good things these are not bad things these are not wrong things but is Christ enough or have those other things encroached upon necessity to you does the promise of Christ stir within you a desire to yield to yield more if need be Colossians chapter 3 verses 3 through 5 tells us that we are dead, that our life is hid with Christ in God, that when Christ who is our life shall appear, we shall also appear with Him in glory. To that end we are called to mortify our members which are upon the earth, fornication and uncleanness and inordinate affection and evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. Is Christ your life? when He appears and He is going to appear and on that day there will be that day of judgment will you be able to stand up unashamed at how you spent your time at how you lived your life of your priority structure in place is Christ your contentment? having things is fine but don't let things be your contentment having a family is fine but don't let family be your contentment having friends is great but don't let friends be your contentment Having a job is a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. It's an important thing. But don't let it be that, the purpose and the, the contentment of your life. Is Christ enough? Is He the center? Everything else flowing from it. Christ has given me a job. I, 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 I use it for Christ. Christ has given me a family. I lead that family into Christ. Christ has blessed me with friends. I serve Christ but, Through uh, through serving those friends, Christ has in every area of life. Is it is it filtering out from Christ? Is He enough? So we ask simply as we close: Is He enough? May I encourage you to make this your mission? May I encourage us as a church to make this our mission? That Christ is enough that we invest our time in Him, that we seek first those things which are above. On the authority of God's Word, to whatever degree we pursue Christ and we lay up reward in heaven, I can guarantee you this, you will never regret it. Thyatira was a church which was growing, it was progressing in works in all the virtues, maturity, of stability of believers. But there was this cancer in their midst Nevertheless, Christ was watching and he says, I'm going to take care of that. You hold fast to what you have. You stay faithful. Make Christ enough for them. Let's make Christ enough for us as well.